We're working through faith conversations, how to talk to other people about our faith, and we've talked about the one-two punch, and now we're going through various topics that will come up in these discussions and how we apply that one-two punch, negative argument, positive argument, to um, various issues. And today's issue is the problem of evil, which I think is one that we all will find comes up in these discussions. When you are talking with unbelievers, and candidly, even when you're talking with baby believers about the faith, this is something with which people really struggle. Um, And so I want to spend all of our time focused on how to have this discussion, various ways to think about this discussion. And this issue, um, even more than the others, really go to Scripture passages to understand where we need to be taking people in Scripture and where our language needs to be grounded as we talk about this issue. Because this is an issue that does not have a satisfying answer except the Spirit of God reveal that answer to you. This is not one that philosophical proofs or evidences is going to get you anywhere. This is one that you have to be utterly reliant on scripture and how that at least makes sense of people's experience, even if it's not for them a satisfying answer. So uh, what is the problem of evil? When I, when I say that, what am I talking about? Yeah. And you can get even a little more detailed than that, which is, um, does the existence of evil disprove God? Um, so the problem is, if God is all-powerful, he must be able to prevent evil. If God's all-powerful, there's nothing he can't do. So he does have the power to prevent evil. If God is all-good, which we say about God, he would want to prevent all evil. So if An all-powerful, all-good God would want to prevent all evil and has the power to prevent all evil. What would you expect to see in a world where that God is real? No evil. (laughs) No evil. And so the argument says, given an all-powerful God and an all-good God and a world where evil exists. I don't think anybody disputes that once... Again, you may have to get into the details of getting somebody to find what is the one thing they're willing to grant is evil. But how could God exist in such a world? And therefore, Christianity's God does not exist. So that's the problem to to state it. Now, remember, in in the negative argument, this existential where we break down their worldview and show that their worldview cannot account for their own experience. This is one of those times where it's, it's pretty easy for an existential argument because they're claiming that evil exists, right? In order to make the argument of the problem of evil, you have to admit that there's good and evil and those things exist. And we've talked a dozen times now about how their worldview cannot account for the existence of good and evil at all. That doesn't prove anything. 
But it's to knock them back off their feet a little bit. It's to reduce their certainty. They are so sure that their worldview explains everything, and your worldview cannot account for everything, and it's just the opposite. So the negative argument, you're going to remind them through questions and humility that actually... Why do they think evil exists? I mean, why do they even think evil is a concept? How do they, when you say, I, I agree with you. I look around the world, I see all kinds of evil. You experience all kinds of evil in your own life. I do some kinds of evil in my own life, and my conscience cries out against me. Why did you do that? That was wrong. So I agree with you that it exists, but in a completely material worldview, or in a worldview that has no ultimate beyond yourself, what defines good and evil? And what it will always come down to is they do. They will try to phrase it in all sorts of other different ways. Andrew and I just had this conversation about one of his friends. They'll try to do this in all sorts of different ways, but what it will come down in the end is they do. They decide what's good and what's evil, what's acceptable and what's not. And most people, when you, if you really can point that out to them in a winsome way, will acknowledge that can't be right. Because they're God at that point. There is a God, and it is, it is me. Um, so, so that's not something people want to say out loud. So it's a good, good place to get them in that in that discussion. Well, uh, under this evil, does something like a child die on a cancer? Do you can't, yes. that you consider that? Evil? They would. Okay. So that's what, I was trying to what, what somebody who's making the problem of evil argument right. is almost always going to include a death of the innocence argument. Okay. Right? They believe that there's such a thing as innocent people who don't deserve what they receive, and that's a big problem for a holy and good God and, and powerful God. Um, we don't, I, in my experience, we don't have to get into that distinction with them here to talk about the problem of evil. Part of our answer is going to be uh, what actually evil is might be different than what we think. And we need to make a distinction that we'll get to between evil and stuff I don't like. Yeah, uh, right. But even if you set aside the stuff I don't like, you focus on the pure evil, there is evil in this world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that's something that we've got to be able to explain. Uh, so the unbeliever's worldview has no standard for distinguishing good from evil. The unbeliever needs a God, an ultimate, to distinguish between good and evil in the first place. How do we have a shared recognition of what's good and what's evil? They'll talk about societal constructs. They'll talk about what's good for the other. That stuff all breaks down. That, that you know, go to the remote islands. Go, it just, it breaks down. Uh, and if enough people made you the outlier so that you were the only person left who thought that murdering grandma for her insurance money was not what was wrong and everybody else thought it was fine, would you be willing to grant that they're right because they're the majority and you're wrong? No. No, people have a strong internal... No, it's not... There is something higher than me to which I'm appealing. They just don't want to appeal to it. Um, so you've got that in the, in the existential arguments. But I really want to talk about the proximate arguments because um, these sort of facts of reality or the world as it is and then our experience of that world is where most of this discussion is going to take place. So we've stated the problem. Let's talk about some not-so-good solutions to the problem of evil. Because a lot of times when the problem of evil is raised, uh, well-meaning Christians uh, give arguments in response. I admittedly, this is, a, this is a tough accusation to have leveled. Right? This is not an easy thing to come up with an answer on the fly. And so a lot of times as people try to come up with answers, they come up with answers that I'm going to say are not so good. And we want to avoid the not so good answers. Um, one of those 
and we've most of us in this room have used these at some point. So we're going to step on everybody's collective toes together. Okay. Um, one of them is the what's called the unreality of evil. That evil doesn't even actually exist. Evil is the absence of good or evil. Like in order for good to exist, there has to be a not good. So it's not that evil has some sort of concrete reality. It's just the absence of good. Um, two problems with that from a Christian, well, one from a Christian point of view and one from a logic point of view. From the Christian point of view, what's the problem with saying evil doesn't exist? Yes. You have more foundational problem though. If you're a Christian, and your response to the problem of evil is evil doesn't really exist. Why does Jesus need to die to conquer? It? Y'all are giving great higher level answers. Even more basic, the Bible says evil exists. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like y'all are coming up with great applications of that, but the Bible says evil exists. So if I'm arguing from a Christian worldview, my answer can't be, uh, don't believe that part of the Bible, because <laughs> the Bible makes it pretty clear evil exists. There's also a philosophical problem here, which is, if, if you say as an answer to the problem of evil, somebody asks you the question, why would a good God allow evil to exist? And your answer is, evil doesn't exist. You know what a smart unbeliever is going to say in response? Okay. Why does a good God allow the absence of good to exist? Right? Like, all you've done is change the language. You, you haven't taken away the fact that there's great evil in this world. Name it what you want. They're not asking about the nomenclature. They're asking about the child with cancer. They're asking about the murderer. So you, you're just shifting the language there, and that's not a, not a super helpful answer. Sorry, I'm, are there believers? That evil is merely the absence of God's presence. There are lots of uh, people within the Christian sphere who would even say that about hell. Yeah, that's where I hell is just the absence of God's presence, and evil is just the absence of good. Um, another one is the free will defense. This is probably the one you hear the most from Christians. God had to create a world that limited his power and his goodness in order to allow for human free will. That it is so important to God that people have absolute freedom that he had to make a world where his goodness and his power are limited. Well, it's not a very good answer. (laughs) It's not a good answer for several reasons. One of them is, again, you've just changed the language. You haven't really provided a solution to the problem because now what you're saying is it's not that God can't stop it. It's that he didn't want to. Well, no, I'm not saying that he didn't want to. I'm saying he had to make a world where he loves your... Okay, so he didn't want to because of my freedom. But you're still saying that an all-powerful, all-good God just didn't want to stop evil. That's what that answer comes down to. God prioritized something more than stopping evil. And that's not a real helpful uh, answer. You also have a real biblical problem with this for Christians. Because if people have to be able to sin, when they say freedom, they mean freedom to sin or not to sin. The freedom to choose sin. If people have to be able to sin, in order to love God freely and fully, then what does that say for the new heavens and the new earth? How do we wrap our minds around what Scripture says about the world that is to come where there will be no sin? Will we not 
freely and fully love God in that world? Well, we actually have loved God more in this life, pre-glorification, than we will in the world where we're not able to sin? That's nuts. And so you have a biblical problem of you can't say that in order to love God freely, the, the ability to sin must be present. You can't tie those together because Scripture doesn't tie those together. Questions about that one? Uh, it's not a road we want to go down, the, the free will argument. Um, then there's a... You won't hear this one as much, but I need to mention it, which is a best possible world defense. This is from people who've taken college classes in philosophy or apologetics or something and, and uh, learned highfalutin arguments. But it's basically that attributes require their opposite. And so in order for this world to have good, remember, in all good, the, the, the supreme being, the greatest possible being, if he were to create, the only thing he can create is the greatest possible world, right? If he created a suboptimal world, then he's not really the supreme being. He's not as great as he says he is. So to create the best possible world, there has to be good in it. There absolutely must be good in the greatest possible world. And so any world that has one attribute must also have its opposite. So if you have good, you must also have evil. Um, the problem is that confuses the existence of an attribute with that attribute actually being exhibited or carried out. So having good in a world can allow theoretically for evil. That doesn't mean God has to actually let the evil happen, let the evil be made manifest. That makes sense. Again, that one's not going to come up a lot. Um, but think about Adam and Eve's existence before the fall. In the garden, pre-fall, was their world worse than the world after the fall? Well, in that argument, you'd have to say, yeah, it's worse because it, it, it's a greater world that has evil in it because it couldn't have, like, it's just, it's, it's madness. So don't, uh, don't go down those roads. When you're arguing against the problem of evil, your argument needs to begin and end with scripture. And that doesn't mean that you have to say to the person, I'm only going to speak to you using scripture's words here. It doesn't mean you have to make them feel like that they're going through a Bible study class they didn't ask for. It does mean that you have to be so steeped in how scripture responds to this question that you can speak that way in your own words and then that you have the ability to take them to the places in scripture that speak to this. The biblical response to the problem of evil is this. God has a morally compelling reason for ordaining the existence of evil. What we're challenging is, in my list of premises above, is premise two. That if God is all good, he must want to prevent evil. That the only way God could be all good is to prevent all evil. That, that's the presupposition in somebody's minds. And that's the one we're challenging. We're saying, no, actually... Um, God has a morally compelling reason for allowing and ordaining the existence of evil. Not just his hands are tied by our free will, not just his hands are tied by the existence of good, where God is somehow a victim of the world he's made. But an actual, no, no, God has a morally compelling reason. God can justify the existence of evil. Oh, that's, that's intense. Um, what, what somebody is confusing in the problem of evil is the idea of 
God conquering evil ultimately, which we all will agree is necessary, and God preventing evil in each and every individual situation. And what people want is for there to be no evil in each and every individual situation. There's just no reason a good God could justify that. say, well, wait a minute. Let's look at some of these situations and see if perhaps God could justify it in that situation. Um, The atheist has the other problem, by the way, which is they, they can't demonstrate that no such reason exists. They've got nothing, no foundation on which to build an argument that they're making, which is that the lack of evil in every individual situation is better than the presence of it. It, That that whole line of reasoning feels right, but their worldview can't account for it. They they have no uh, intellectual, logical, moral foundation on which to make those kinds of claims. They are a finite fallible human. And so if there is a God, they are claiming that they're in a position to know what that God ought to do. And that's part of what you have to back off a little bit, is get them to have some some ex, what's called existential humility. There is a God, and I'm not Him. And that doesn't mean that I can't ask questions, or think about, or work through logically what God's reasons might be, but that's not what they're doing. They're trying to start the argument from the beginning with, there is no possible justification for evil in the world. And that they're the ones who have to show that that statement makes sense and is justifiable. And it's not. We are fallible human beings, and we're talking about the Creator here. So although God has not revealed the specific reasons for ordaining all evil, the Christian is at least allowed to say, he could have a reason that is not clear to me, And I can trust what God has revealed about the issue. And that's what's going to take us to Scripture, is Scripture is not silent on this. And that's why we need to let Scripture speak more than we do uh, in in responding to this. Isn't the, what about the, uh, we're in a fallen world? Um, Yeah, but why? Why would an all-good, all-powerful God let the world fall? Because he's bringing his people back why didn't he just keep his people with him in the first place you see what I'm saying it all you, 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 there is I, I, it's, a, it's a great point to raise I just want to emphasize this so much if anyone has ever taught you a simple answer to the problem of evil they're lying to you or they are deceived or wrong there is no one sentence answer to this and where we will get in a lot of trouble with unbelievers is if we, if we act as if that's just the way it is is some form of a valid answer So what we've got to say is, that's a great question. It's something a lot of us struggle with. Now, tell me, from your worldview, the things that, how how do you answer that? You say it disproves God. We can talk about that. But just, how do you account for the existence of evil in the world? Now you're back in the the transcendental argument, right? They can't account for the existence of evil because they can't account for the concept of evil. Much less the, so so you're just sowing these seeds of uncertainty. And then you say, yeah, you know, I tell you what I appreciate about the Christian worldview 
It doesn't give an easy answer to this question, but the answer is is built into the whole thing because Christianity is about recognizing that there is a transcendent creator God who is something utterly different than me. And even though I look at evil in the world and say, there is no good reason for that to happen. Scripture tells me that, now wait a minute, I don't see a good reason for it to happen, but there's a transcendent creator God who obviously does see a good reason for it to happen, or it would not happen. You want to talk about that? Can I show you? Right. So it really, this is a terrible one for most of us that want to, to have, and I'm, I'm at the front of this line, that want to have like the kind of shutdown answer of just, oh, you think you're so clever raising the problem of evil. Well, let me smack you down with this one. It's a terrible one to, to handle that way. Um, because it really is a tough one. It really is. Not, not tough like the Bible. We're going to go over it in a minute. The Bible can't speak to it. But the type of humanly satisfying answer that people are looking for, the Bible doesn't give. And the Bible says very plainly that it doesn't give it and why it doesn't give it. And you have to see that with the eyes of faith. You cannot see that with the eyes of human reason. Um, So then let's talk about the positive argument. Remember, the negative we showed, the unbeliever lives inconsistently with his own worldview. The unbeliever agrees there's evil in the world, but their worldview can't account for it. Um, And the unbeliever actually lives as if our worldview is true, that there is an all-good, all-powerful God who's the basis for understanding. And so we've kind of broken down their arrogance about the way they view the world and raised some questions. Now let's talk about ours. All right, so the easy one, real quick, the transcendent, not easy because it's easy, easy because we've done it a bunch of times. The transcendental argument, only the Christian God allows us to make the moral distinction between good and evil. Only the personal ultimate allows us to make uh, factual statements about good and evil and to have rational existence and all that stuff. So the fact that we're even having this argument at all, even using these terms, requires underlying foundation Christian worldview. Okay. Now, let's talk about um, God for a minute. Again, not because I can persuade you by the answer to this question that God is worth believing in. All I'm trying to show you is that my worldview has an answer. I'm not just sweeping this under the rug and pretending it's a non-issue. My worldview has an answer. And you raised such a good question with the problem of evil, you should not be satisfied with a worldview that doesn't have an answer. You're right to be troubled by this. So let me show you what the Christian answer to this is. Um, Point one, the Bible is not silent on this issue. The reason that we don't have to rely on human arguments is not just that they wouldn't work, but it's that the Bible has a ton to say about this particular issue. One of the chief places for this is the story of Job. If you can get somebody to read from the book of Job or uh, tell them the story. It's an interesting story. So they will know parts of it. Oh yeah, that's the guy God did all the smiting to. In this, right? But just kind of walk through the story of Job because I guarantee you average Joe unbeliever and even average Jane baby Christian who knows the story of Job does not know Job 36 through 40. They know the story part of Job. They don't know the dialogue between Job and God that explains the story part of Job. 
And that is really helpful stuff. So who's got Job 38, 1 through 7? Job, hold just one second. Remember the context of this is Job has had it. He's had it with everything in his life going wrong. Job was a righteous man inasmuch as a human is righteous. He follows God. He believes God. He submits to God. He raises his kid in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Job's a righteous man. And Job has had it with being so righteous and getting such evil in return. His stuff gets gone. His family gets gone. His house gets gone. It's all gone. And Job has had it. And Job says to God, how do you justify this? Right? That is the problem of evil question, right? Job looks around at the evil in the world and says, I demand an answer for how an all-good, all-powerful God lets this evil happen. Job 38, 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the world and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Oh, sorry. I kept going. Carried away. <laughs> Job forty six through eight. That's me. Um, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, "Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right?" We tell the unbeliever. Look, our, our God revealed to us a lot of things about himself, a lot of things about ourselves, a lot of things about reality. But in this case, where someone approaches God and asks that question, and that question is by its very nature not just a question, isn't it? It's, it's an accusation. You are wrong to do this. And God puts up with a lot of stuff from us. But where God goes to war with Job, that's the dress for action like a man. Put on your battle armor. Let's go a few rounds and see how this works out for you, Job. When God goes to war with one of his righteous followers, asking this question, making this accusation, his answer begins and ends with, there is so much I can do that you can't explain. You can't explain how I made the world with my voice. You can't explain the migratory patterns of birds. I did it and you can't explain it. So you need to fathom that these areas where you are putting me in the wrong is a situation where you're looking at something you can't explain and drawing the wrong conclusion, which is there is no explanation. There are all kinds of things that happen in this world for which you people, created things, have no explanations. And you need to stand down. So Job hears this answer, 41 through 5. Then the Lord said... Uh, oh, yeah, they're on good terms now. <laughs> 
Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Right? That's what's happening here is fault finding, an accusation. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. So God turns it back on Job. You want to tell me this is wrong? You answer my series of questions explaining the nature of the universe, and then I will explain to you why this evil's come upon you. And Job wisely answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job gets it. And so part of our conversation is, again, you want to be careful here. You don't want to, you don't want to fall off the other side of the horse and just say, well, it's God. You can't understand anything about God. No, no, no. We can understand everything about God that God has revealed about himself, which is a ton. But this is one area where God said, You don't, and you won't get it. You don't. God will give us some examples of reasons for allowing evil. And we'll go to those secondarily. He will give us something to work with. He will not give us the absolute definitive, this is why this world was better than that world. Why a world where you have cancer is better than a world where you don't have cancer? You may never get that answer. Right? Why a world where you struggle with this sin instead of a world where you're free from that sin? It's better because God made it. And God did make the best possible world. He brought the world that brings him the most glory. That's what the best possible world is. Not a world where you have the easiest experience. And that's really what this comes down to. Is I can, I can talk about the evil that impacts other people. I can talk about why that person was innocent. Why did this have to happen to them? But what I'm really talking about is not them, it's me. It's my hurt. It hurts me that this happened. It makes me feel horrible that this happened. My experience with evil is so unpleasant, as all of ours is. And so what we're really saying is, God, the world would have been better if my experience in it was more pleasant. And God says... There's just so much you don't see. There's just so much you don't know. Uh, it doesn't invalidate your hurt, but it does turn around the accusation. This is a philosophical accusation. God, you don't exist because if you did, the world would be better. And God says, I don't think you know what better means. Better means something very different than what you think. Uh, who's got Romans 9.14? you. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Go through the middle chapters of Romans. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, Pharaoh I've raised up as a vessel for destruction to show my power and might. And on a human level, we look at those and say, that's not fair, therefore that's not right. And when we get to the that's not right, we're making an accusation against God. And you cannot start with a fallible human being's interpretation of the world and use that to make sure-footed accusations against God. The only sure-footed things you can say about God are the things that God has revealed about God. Everything else gets mucked up by our humanness. Uh, 
And so the Bible is not at all silent on this question. Questions about that? That's why we have to use the Bible to answer it. God did not leave us without an answer to this. Um, Two, uh, how did I say this? God has vindicated his goodness. Remember what's on trial here is the goodness of God. People aren't really questioning the power of God. They may say they are, but they're not. They're questioning the goodness of God. I don't want to believe in the Christian God. Why? Because he allows all the stuff that isn't good. He makes me do all this stuff. He tells me all this stuff I can't do. And then I don't even get a perfect life as a reward. I get this sin-filled muck. And I don't want to believe in a God who's like that. That's what this argument's about. That's the argument deep within all of our unbelieving hearts, right? That, that is it. And we should be able to identify with the unbeliever in their struggle in this. Yes, I know what that feels like. I know what you're talking about. It sounds too wicked to even say out loud, but I want you to know every Christian I know has some experience of that feeling. I don't want to. God has vindicated his goodness, though. Scripture, um, the Old Testament, is a real cliffhanger, isn't it? Because the Old Testament does not vindicate God's goodness. The New Testament vindicates God's goodness on the cross. When God shows you these repetitive sacrifices don't work, sending the world's best prophets and preachers doesn't work, none of this stuff solves the actual problem of evil. And so how does God vindicate his goodness? It's not by giving you a satisfactory explanation. It's by actually solving the problem of evil. It's by providing a way uh, that that, uh, sin and evil can be dealt with in the individual. God vindicates himself as ultimately good by providing Christ to overcome all evil and by showing us the path from there to the new heavens and the new earth where there will be none. So we, we can say, yeah, I wish he'd connected some other dots. or I w-. Yeah, we'd have done it differently. But we can't say that his goodness is up for question at this point. He has shown us uh, that his goodness is vindicated in history. So that's an important one. Questions about that? I was just going to comment that in Job, he says that uh, God is about the first fruits of, and I think later, that's what I think about with Christ, that when he was raised from the dead, he was that taste of no death, no... Yeah, the power to overcome. Jesus' last public miracle uh, is raising someone from the dead. He shows he has that kind of power over death. But then he himself is not just raised from the death, he's raised from the penalty of hell. (laughs) And so he shows that he has this spiritual power to actually overcome the evil one. This is part of the textual, oh, I wish they'd done it a little different. But in the Lord's Prayer, the scripture that's being quoted doesn't say, deliver me from evil generically. It's got a personal pronoun on it. Deliver me from the evil one. We don't say it that way because historically that's not the way it's been said for 2,000 years and you don't 
change things up on people just because you wish somebody translated a little differently, right? But it is good for us to think through in the Lord's Prayer every now and then. I'm not just asking for some sort of vague, better day tomorrow than I had today where I'm less... I'm asking that the evil one who prowls around like a lion looking to devour me, that you would deliver me from him. And God did provide a way to deliver us from him. And that's a critical part of vindicating his goodness. Third, the Bible does give some examples. Not all. Not enough to satisfy the eyes of the flesh. But enough that if what we're trying to do is not reason our way to God, but be persuaded that the Bible can account for our experience of life, the Bible does give us some of those. Who's got Romans 9, 17 to 23? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he pardons whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory. So he tells us in that passage, I'm going to give you some examples of this while also reserving back the ultimate answer, so to speak, of I'm the creator. You don't understand or see things the way I see them. But here's a couple reasons you might want to think about. It shows my power. It shows my mercy. It shows my wrath. It makes known the riches of my glory. These are reasons why I ordained evil to be in the world and some of the purposes for which I use it. Who's got John five fourteen? Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, If you are well, send in more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Oh. <laughs> Do you know one reason why evil exists in the world? To punish sin. God says, hey, some worse will happen to you if you just treat sin lightly and go about with your sinning. Uh, Hebrews 12 has a similar... Did I give that to anybody? Yeah, let's do that. Children and not sons. Besides this, 
we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So some of the evil we experience is God disciplining the ones he loves, making us more ready for the day of Christ's coming, dealing with the evil in us to make us more holy. Where the health and wealth folks get this stuff wrong is in their desire to have an answer to the problem of evil, they oversimplify the answer to just these proximate things. So that they think you can draw a straight line from, oh, Pam is suffering today. It is because God is disciplining. You can't do that. God's giving multiple examples out of a billion examples of reasons why he might do this. Because the whole point of his argument is you can't fathom the whole picture of why I might do this. I will give you some so that you can at least develop some categories, but I'm not giving you all. You couldn't understand all if I gave them to you. And so we need to recognize that God has purposes for this. One day, he will completely destroy evil and set all things right. That vindicates his holiness. We've already seen how he started that. Daphne said the first fruits of of that work happening. The resurrection is God's proof that it will happen. So his goodness is vindicated. But for now, we have to recognize that he ordains evil. He uses it without being responsible for it. He ordains it and he uses it for purposes that may not be clear to us, including some types of things that we could think through. It is a valuable question when you're suffering to ask, is there some obvious sin, some obvious place I'm resisting God in my life where this is his discipline to point me to that? Um, that should not be a exercise that's measured in weeks. It should be an exercise that's measured in minutes and hours. Right? Search yourself. But uh, that may be a cause for it. Except with our closest friends and family, we don't ask that question of them. And when we do ask our closest friends and family in an effort to be helpful and they've asked for that input, we trust the answer they give us. We don't go all Job's friends on him and push in further. No, you're, I know you say there's no evil here, but I smell it. I smell the wickedness. On, right? um, so this is, what, this is what our answer comes down to. Questions about the proximate and then the existentials really easy flowing from this. How careful should sorry, no. how careful should we be um, in you know large like you know earthquakes or tsunami you know don't say, say it yeah don't say it in a group don't say it on social media yeah um, the more nuanced any argument is the smaller the audience it's designed for so we don't say anything that's not true. And if we're asked a question, we need to answer truthfully, speak the truth truthfully. Um, But a lot of Christians inject ourselves into unbelievers' discussions 
with different categories and different presuppositions and so many people in the group, and that doesn't mean a thousand, sometimes it can mean four, but so many people in the group with different presuppositions that there is no opportunity for the level of nuance that this type of argument requires. So my answer in that kind of group is a, hey, you know, this isn't the context for it. I'm thankful that the Bible does have answers for this. If any of you ever want to talk about it, I'd be happy. But I will not engage in a room of 30 people or a group of friends of six people who aren't believers coming from their independent perspectives and wanting to argue the problem of evil. You know, wanting to argue that 9-11 is God's judgment on America. I have strong feelings about that. I can make a biblical case for it. It's not a very helpful biblical case in most contexts. Yeah. Why, why earthquakes? Yeah, I'm, I'm, they're brutal. They're tragic. It's, I long for the day when God removes that from us. I submit to his purposes for them, even when I don't understand them. But boy, do I long, just like you, I can't wait for the day when those are gone. Good question. The Christian answer explains what we see in the world, what everybody sees in the world. Total depravity. They may not believe the title of the doctrine, but everybody agrees it exists. What's one of the most common expressions of our day? Nobody's perfect. That's what you're saying with total depravity. That is literally what you're saying. Nobody's perfect. Now, we're saying a lot more than that. But at the very least, we agree with them on that. No one is perfect. Everybody agrees in the failure of workspace righteousness. They don't agree with it in every moment. Some people think it's working for them for a time. But everybody has that existential crisis. We're like, look, I have done all of this and I still feel guilty. I still feel empty. I'm still not confident before God. Everybody has the experience of just needing to be saved from this. From this. They may not want to be saved from this, but they recognize they need to be saved. Everybody has the experience of sanctification. I used to be this way, and now I'm this way. Again, not using the term for it, but everybody has some sort of internal compass for I used to behave in a way that was worse than the way I behave now. There is this possibility of improvement, which means that there's good and bad and better and worse, right? The moment you say that. Um, And then common grace. Our worldview can account for how that even takes place in unbelievers, which is common grace. Not everybody in the world is as evil as they could be all the time. Why not? If we are just material, biological matter going through chemical processes in the brain, why aren't we the most... This is what angers me so much about self-righteous evolutionary science. We should be way worse people than we are. Good morality makes no sense. Caring about the group makes no sense. Evolutionary biology is survival of the fittest. That's what it should be. If, if you in any way hinder my ability to move up, I should cut you. <laughs> right? There should be no mercy. There should be no communal spirit except where it's helpful to the individual. They can't explain why human beings aren't way worse than we are. But the scriptural worldview can. Common grace. Um, and the Christian worldview provides hope. <laughs> there's an end to this. There's a purpose in it and there's an end to it. So then you just finish however this conversation flowed 
you, you try to weave in or finish with your, your testimony from personal experience of how God has helped you deal with the problem of evil. And I hope as we mature as Christians, part of our dealing with the problem of evil, yes, is how do we interpret and respond to the bad things that happen in the world. That's what people mean when they ask the question, and that is part of our experience. But part of what I hope you're able to turn around in your answer is as you now, this side of Christ, think about how God has dealt with the problem of evil, the place you look first is inward. And you see how God is dealing with the problem of evil within you. God has freed me from slavery to sin. God has given me the hope of a resurrection and glory and holiness. That's got to be a part of this answer because that is your experience of it. And that personal trust in Christ to deliver me from the problem of evil is as far as I can get. I, I can't get any closer to God's understanding of the problem of evil except looking at God's concrete solution for the problem of evil which is Jesus and saying yes I'll take that <laughs> All right, that is where this needs to end up so questions about that I know that's a lot to take in but this is one I think will come up if you're having these conversations with people who are close to you this is one that will come up in one form or another And it's not a bad one to camp out on and to spend the most time on. Because if you can get people, this leads people to Christ. I don't mean it changes their hearts. I mean, it literally leads them to the place where God may change their heart because you've shown them Christ. Uh, Questions about that? So, atheists in your experience, what... So they basically just believe that we're just... You know, you know, floating forms, evolution, all that. They don't have any explanation for anything whatsoever. They just exist. They live that. They don't live that way because no one can live that way. They say that way. They say there's no answer for it. Right. That's where you're sort of starting. Yeah. And part of the the point of the first punch, the negative argument, is to show them that their certainty is. Not, not certain. And in fact, they don't even live according to the certainty they claim they have. They're living inconsistently with their own worldview. 